0: Welcome to the Public Morality. The Supreme Court, in a 5-4 decision, recently overturned the landmark ruling in Roe v. Wade that established the constitutional right to abortion. Though the knowledge that Roe would be struck down due to the unprecedented leaked majority opinion earlier this year did not mitigate the impact of the formal announcement made last week. But it does beg the question, what does it mean to live in a post-Roe world. To discuss the Roe decision and where the court may go from here, we are pleased to welcome back Professor Barbara Perry. Professor Perry is a political scientist at the University of Virginia and Director of Presidential Studies at the University's Miller Center, where she co-directs the Presidential Oral History Program. Professor Barbara Perry, welcome to the Public Morality.
1: Good to be with you as always, Byron.
0: Uh, let's begin by having you offer an analysis of what the ruling actually said vis a vis overturning Roe versus Wade.
1: Sure. The case came to the court as a challenge to a law that was passed uh, down south uh, in Mississippi about uh, whether there could be an abortion. Uh, performed after the 15 week mark in a pregnancy. And the state had passed a law saying, no, it could not. So it would ban abortions after the 15 week mark in the state. And the case came to the court with uh, the state arguing that it wasn't even necessarily asking for an overturn of Roe versus Wade, but rather it, was, it wanted the court to uphold this new state law with this restriction and limitation on abortions. But the court, uh, in now what will be the famous Dobbs case, as it is known, uh, ruled last week That uh, not only was this ban on abortions in Mississippi after the 15 week mark constitutional, but that it was taking the opportunity to overturn the Roe precedent from 1973 because, as Justice Alito's majority opinion stated, uh, it was, quote, wrongly Decided at that time are egregiously wrong, uh, as he put it in his words, uh, and so that is the the basis uh, of the opinion. That's the the core uh, ruling within the Dobbs opinion. It's, it's steam with
0: the, just the Dobbs opinion for just for a moment momentarily. Wasn't it somewhere in oral arguments that the emphasis switched that the people. Um, uh, Arguing for for the abortion law uh, started to make the argument that Roe needed to be overturned. Uh, did I have that? Do I have that incorrect?
1: Um, I haven't gone back through the oral argument in some time. I do know that uh, what was being focused on from the oral argument over these many weeks since it was first argued in December of last year, and between when that happened and then the the so-called leak of a couple of months ago of the Alito draft opinion, which turned out to be pretty much set in stone, as we know from the release of the actual opinion itself, the final version. But what was being focused on from looking back at that oral argument was Chief Justice John Roberts' uh, indication that he thought that, yes, indeed, he would, as someone who was very much against abortion, Uh, was very willing to uphold the Mississippi statute banning abortions after 15 weeks, but indicating that kind of a middle ground that Roe would not have to be overturned at this point. And he does state that in a concurring opinion uh, to the majority opinion written by Alito, but that had five votes right there and then six votes to uphold counting the Chief Justice's vote, the Mississippi statute, and then five votes to overturn Roe outright. So I'm sure that the legislators in Mississippi who passed this limitation uh, on uh, on abortion uh, were not at all disappointed uh, to your point that uh, indeed Roe has been overturned. And part of the reasoning, we should note is that I'm sure many people are familiar with an intervening precedent between Roe in '73 and now uh, Dobbs in 2022, and that was from 1992, the Casey case, Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania versus Casey, and in that case, the moderates, led by Justice O'Connor, Justice Kennedy, Justice Souter, had three votes to uphold some limitations on abortion uh, from Pennsylvania, um, but they did not want to overturn Roe. So they got two of the liberal votes, including Justice Blackman, who had written the Roe majority opinion in 1973, to uphold Roe, to make some changes in, how it was viewed by states, and to allow some limitations that states could impose on access to abortion. And that is why states, including Mississippi, had been indicating and passing through their legislatures these various limitations. The limitations had grown stronger and stronger and stronger as these legislatures became more and more conservative and and anti-abortion. And then the test was always under Roe and under Casey, which of these limitations uh, would be upheld. But now with six anti-abortion members of the court, including three put on by President Trump, uh, the states got more in the conservative realm than they even perhaps thought they could uh, by getting an outright overturning of the Roe precedent.
0: You you mentioned this um, a few moments ago. Is there any significance in your view that there was a 6-3 um, vote to affirm Mississippi law, but a 5-4 vote overturning Roe, is there any significance in that or is that just semantics?
1: I think there's significance in it, but not for the result. Uh, in other words, the result is the same, whether it would have been 6-3 to three outright overturning Roe or 5-4. to four. Uh, I I always go back to when I was a fellow at the court in the mid-90s and Justice William Brennan had retired, but as is the precedent and the tradition of the court, uh, even when justices retire, they can maintain their chambers at the court if there's room for them. Sometimes we've had so many retired justices that they have to go over to the federal judicial building over near Union Station (laughs) in Washington, D.C., but at that time, Justice Brennan had uh, had his chambers and he would be assigned a clerk. And he was getting on in years, but he still had this Irish leprechaunish uh, sense of humor about him. And so we, as the fellows, went in to meet with him. And he said, uh, you know, I always have an exercise for my new clerks when they come on the first day in the job here. They'll be here with me a year. And I always ask them, what's the most important word at the court? And he said, they're all very into liberty and justice and freedom. And so they all throw out those important words from our constitution, but he said, I then wait and I say, no, 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 that's not right. And then I say, are you are you finished? Any other ideas? And they say no. And then he said, I hold up my hand with five fingers and I say five. That's the most important word at the court. And that's because it's math, you know, five beats four. And so it doesn't matter that Chief Justice Roberts in the Dobbs case had a slightly different approach uh, it still overturns Roe. The significance, I think, is a manifold, and that is one, that the chief justice uh, is, we always call the, the court after the chief justice's name, so this is known as the Roberts Court, or the Warren Court, or the Rehnquist Court, um, but it doesn't always mean that the chief justice is in the majority or is actually able to lead the court, and right now we see that there and I think it shows as well another bit of it's how far the court has moved to the right if Chief Justice Roberts, who's quite conservative, is now viewed almost as a, um, a centerpiece or a, more of a swing voter uh, in this court, as opposed to a swing vote of an O'Connor or a Souter or a Kennedy, who truly were moderate conservatives. Uh, so I think in that sense, there's, there's also significance. There is also significance in that the math could change if at some point in the future, you would get one more vote, uh, possibly to overturn Dobbs or to rejigger Dobbs if the chief justice would stick to his position that he indicated in this more moderate approach to Roe.
0: Uh, what um, we sort of talked around it What is the impact, in your view, of this decision to overturn Roe versus Wade? Mm
1: -hmm. I think it impacts whatever side a person is on, or even if a person, if possible, comes down in in the middle or in a more moderate position. And maybe for this kind of emotional, um, fraught decision area that, that literally involves matters of life and death. Um, it may be that a lot of people find themselves torn or with mixed feelings or nuanced feelings, more so than the people they might see marching in the streets on either side that might be a bit more extreme. But I think the impact is that on any person who has any relationship to childbearing, it's going to have an impact. And the reason I'm so broad in, in that sweeping that brush is that it, it could be a, a grandparent, for example, uh, of a daughter or a son who maybe at one point under row would have decided not to have a child, but now does not have access uh, to abortion in what probably in the end will be about half of the states. Right now, there were about 13, 14 states that uh, had these so-called trigger laws that as soon as Roe would be overturned, their legislatures had indicated that these anti-abortion laws would go into effect or pro-life laws would go into effect, in effect banning abortion immediately upon the release of the Dobbs opinion. So we have a dozen plus states like that already, mostly in the South and in the Midwest. But probably another 10 or so will join them fairly soon. So about half the states will not allow for abortion in some instances uh, under any circumstances, including rape or uh, incest. So the reason I paint that broad brushstroke of people who could be affected, just imagine a scenario where um, a woman is having to bring a, t- a child into the world that under Rose precedent she might not have. And you could have a grandparent now who is responsible for childcare because that person has the daughter, son has to work. So it really does not, you know, it's not meant to say that everyone has an abortion (laughs) or everyone contemplates abortion. It's not meant to say that at all, but it's just that childbearing is obviously such a part and a broad part of the human condition that anything that has an impact on it is going to have an impact on anybody who's related to anyone of childbearing age.
0: No, we have the benefit of hindsight in retrospect given the unprecedented leak of the February opinion that the court was prepared to strike down Roe, as well as you you mentioned earlier, the Casey case. Um, The ruling was hardly a surprise, but talk about the impact um, once the ruling became official.
1: I've heard a lot of people say, uh, both friends I know, mostly women i've talked to um people on television uh commentators newscasters people in the street who've been interviewed uh, again on both sides interestingly enough people in tears of emotion either because and this is people of all ages i saw young women interviewed for example who are pro-life and were choked with emotion that what they and their parents and maybe grandparents had been working so hard to overturn Roe was was now now here. Uh, So they were choked with emotion of happiness and fulfillment. Obviously, on the other side, there were people in tears, um, particularly young women of childbearing age, I noticed, uh, who were devastated. Uh, by this, because again, it's it's not meant to say that um, they they anticipate someday that they will have an abortion, but rather that uh, it's painted in in that position as a uh, a healthcare decision over one's body, the the most intimate elements of a person's body. And so there was a lot of emotion there. And then I would say, uh, Byron, that another result that I saw in people's reactions, even though they were trying to prepare themselves one way or the other for this decision since the leak of the opinion, um, was J- Justice Thomas's concurrence that he outright said that because of the overturning of the philosophical approach to Roe, uh, that is the finding of a liberty component in the 14th Amendment that was expanded to include the right to abortion, that same philosophy was used by the court uh, in, uh, up, in, in striking down, let's say, upholding the right of even married couples to use contraception and striking down of a Connecticut law in 1965 that banned Uh, the use of contraception, even among married couples. Uh, The reference to sodomy statutes that had been struck down in states, again, using this philosophy of sort of a fundamental right to liberty found in the penumbras and emanations of the 14th Amendment, uh, gay marriage, marriage equality. And so I saw a lot of people going beyond the impact that this Dobbs decision will have on abortion to say, will the philosophy of the conservatives on the court now reach back and overturn precedents that have guaranteed the right to contraception, the right to sexual privacy, the right to marriage equality?
0: Uh, You you, you had mentioned this earlier about how we've always referred to the court by the chief justice, the Warren court, the Burger court, the Rehnquist court, and the, the Roberts court. Since um, that seems to be in question, and a a number of people have have raised that since this particular ruling. Uh, Does this court, in your view, look more conservative or look more
1: Republican, in your view? Mm, Great question. Yes, great question. Well, I think it's beyond doubt that it looks conservative because first of all we know that six of the justices right now are conservatives um and and that's okay in the in the sense that justices are human and they are not uh elected so they don't have the same kind of partisanship as elected officials would and we don't want them to have that because as Chief Justice Roberts said in his confirmation hearings, judges are supposed to be neutral when they approach a case. They are supposed to be, as he said, like the umpire behind home plate in a baseball game who doesn't take the field wearing the uniform of one of the two opposing teams. He's supposed, as he said, to call the balls and strikes as he sees them. But again, because these people are human and they come from not only judicial backgrounds, but sometimes political backgrounds or at least ideological backgrounds. For the whole history of the court, we have had justices uh, from different ideological, philosophical perspectives and even different party backgrounds, political party backgrounds. We should add, though, that most of the cases that the Supreme Court hears uh, do not have partisan Elements to them. You know, they are. And and I remember Justice Kennedy, who's now retired, saying one time uh, to a group of students I had taken to the court that he actually liked working on those cases that weren't like we would see with abortion or marriage equality or religion or that that group of maybe 10 out of the 60 cases that they decide each year that the public gets really charged up about because, as we've indicated already in our conversation, those cases have major impacts on people's lives. And people have strong feelings about them. But let's say it's a business case or something involving the minutiae, important, but minutiae of some technical element of the law. And in those instances, ideology really means nothing. Partisanship means nothing. So Justice Kennedy, who was, uh, tended to be a moderate conservative and a centrist, said, I really like working on those cases because we don't divide into our camps that we sometimes do on some of these instances. He said, but it means that we are, we're sort of scattered among the nine of us in terms of how we approach it. So I think it's important to say that not every one of the 60 or so decisions the court hands down each year uh, is very clearly conservative or liberal or the justices have divided into Republican or Democratic camps. But I think we also have to be realistic to say not only now is the court conservative, uh, it's conservative in its religion So we have six justices who were raised Catholic um, or, or converted to Catholicism or were raised Catholic. And in the case of Gorsuch, he converted to Episcopalianism. But we have six justices with strong, conservative Catholic backgrounds, unlike at a time when we had three Catholics on the court, Justice Kennedy, Justice Brennan, and Justice Scalia, who represented three different points on the ideological spectrum. So we had a liberal in Brennan, a centrist in Kennedy, and a conservative in Scalia. And then knowing that all six of these conservative justices were appointed by Republican presidents, uh, we know that that you could say, yes, this is at least at the very least a Republican-shaped court. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: y- y- on that note, uh, a go-to question. Mm-hmm in doing recent Supreme Court nomination hearings has been the issue of stare decisis about precedent. And Justice uh, Alito in, in writing in the majority, you know, discussed um, stare decisis along with other recent rulings, let's say on guns. Would it be fair nomination hearings notwithstanding that stare decisis is a practice with this court applies until it doesn't.
1: (laughs) Yes, and so let's go to the Latin, uh, stare decisis. As you say, shorthand for precedent, it, it literally means in Latin, let the decision stand. And I comment on this the way my wonderful mentor who's passed on now, but was a Holocaust survivor and became a renowned constitutional and Supreme Court scholar. And he developed in his, uh, his book called Judicial Process, a set of what he disca- described as maxims of self-restraint, judicial self-restraint. And this had come out of uh, a list that had been given by Justice Louis Brandeis in a case called Ashwander. And the practical reason, there are several practical reasons for having precedent in the law. One is stability. It's, it's helpful in a country that says it is tied to the rule of law to make sure that that law is fairly stable because we don't want to get up one morning and have the law be one thing and get up the next day and have the law be another. And this abortion instance is the perfect example of that or the, the gun case that you mentioned, this term coming out of, of New York. I mean, it, it does have an impact on people's lives. So one is it's helpful to know what the law is from day to day or from week to week or year to year or half century to half century in the case of Roe. That's one. But the concept of judicial self-restraint is also broader than that. And it means that the court, first of all, doesn't have, as Alexander Hamilton said in the Federalist Papers, it doesn't have the power of the purse or the power of the sword. That is, Mm -hmm. purse is money that's the Congress, the sword is executive power, that's the president and the executive branch. But what Hamilton said the court had was the power of judgment. And that can either be weak or strong. It's very strong if the court says you must do this and people follow it. So if it now says you can't get an abortion or you don't have a right to abortion and your state says therefore you can't have one and If that means it's harder to get an abortion, it doesn't mean abortion will go away, sadly, because we know that abortion has been around for a long time. So it doesn't mean that all people will hold to that, but it means that they will not be allowed to get one legally in their state, so they might have to go elsewhere or, sadly, might have to try to engage in, in some other practice. So it's helpful to know what that law is, but it's also helpful for the court's legitimacy if it restrains itself from being too powerful to the point where people lose respect for it. And so that's the the tricky fine line that the court has to try to follow. And it obviously decided that because it believed that Roe, as the majority opinion said, was wrongly decided from the beginning that it had to be overturned.
0: When you look at this this particular court historically, might one posit that in terms of its significance, it is in the 21st century, the antithesis, the 180 degree difference of the Warren Court of the 1960s. Your thoughts.
1: Yes. Very good point. And I was thinking about this recently because I was in graduate school studying this very deeply uh, in the 1980s. And there was a book written about the Burger Court, which followed the Warren Court. Warren Berger was appointed chief justice by Richard Nixon. and, And Nixon got four appointments total in his six years in office, including the chief justice, Blackmun. Um, Powell and Rehnquist thought them all to be conservative and thought this would be the revolution that would overturn many of the legal precedents and the liberal precedents of the Warren Court, particularly in civil rights and liberties, but most important in criminal rights. And so somebody wrote a book in the 1980s about the Burger Court, and it was called something like the Burger Court, the counter revolution that wasn't. Because the Warren Court was viewed as a liberal revolution. Nixon had run on a platform in 1968 and in 72 as part of his, quote, Southern strategy to get Republican votes by saying, I'm going to put conservatives on the federal courts, especially the Supreme Court, to overturn these radical liberal views of the Warren Court, especially in, again, the criminal rights realm. But justices don't always follow their president's wishes, which again is a good thing because that means they're independent. Um, and so somebody like Justice Blackman, who was put on by Nixon, a- ended up writing the Roe decision uh, of allowing abortion as a fundamental right. So um, I think that what we're seeing now, to your point, is ultimately took, some 60 years. Uh, but we're now seeing, I think that revolution that Nixon thought he was going to perpetrate, uh, in the late sixties and early seventies, it's taken another 50 years, just as it took 50 years for pro-life movement and advocates to get to the point of the court overturning Roe.
0: And to your point, historically, um, and I'm quoting President Eisenhower: "The worst damn thing I ever did was put Earl Warren on the Supreme Court." So, he <laughs> and Bill Brennan,
1: <laughs> and so he was asked as he left office, "Yeah, have you? Did you commit any any mistakes uh, while president?" And yes, his answer was uh, two, and they're both on the Supreme Court, and he was referring to Earl Warren and to William Brennan. By the way. Justices of the Supreme Court, including the chief, don't have to have judicial experience. Earl Warren had never sat on a court.
0: Well, he was governor of
1: California. Been governor of California, including when Japanese Americans were rounded up during World War II, mm-hmm. uh, was thought to be conservative, uh, but got on the court and obviously uh, d- was not acting in a conservative manner. Political scientists have studied this, by the way, and discovered that about... of justices depart from what their president's hope will be, their views uh, and their decisions on the court. But that means 80% of them tend to stick to their president's desires. And um, that looks to be what's happening now with this current majority.
0: Last week we had uh, Paul Collins from University of Massachusetts Amherst on. And I asked him a question. I think, and I was going to pose a very similar question to you. One of the things that seems to be different about this particular court is we've always, to use a Madisonian term, factions. So we knew where certain justices were going to vote. I mean, we we could pretty much predict how Antonin Scalia was going to vote, and we could pretty much predict how oftentimes um, uh, Stephen Breyer might vote. Um, But there were always outliers. There was Anthony Kennedy. There was Sandra Day O'Connor. There were always these outliers, and that would turn. Now the court seems – predictability seems to be gone from the court. I I think for those who did not um, care for the Roe decision, you you wouldn't necessarily have to be Notre Dame to predict um, that they had the votes to overturn Roe. Your thoughts?
1: Absolutely not. And it, it does show that, in a way, presidents and the Senate, which, as you know, must advise and consent to nominees to the Supreme Court, have learned their lessons well. And that is that Justice Souter, for example, Justice Blackman, we've named, O'Connor, Kennedy, uh, Justice Powell, Uh, These were all viewed as swing votes. That is, they were moderate within, in most of those cases, conservatism. They had been conservatives before they came to the court. Uh, There was more moderation in the Republican Party at that time. Uh, And somebody like Sandra Day O'Connor, Justice Kennedy, I I remember as, as a fellow at the court in the 90s going to oral argument. And I should add, I am a political scientist, not a lawyer, but most of my colleagues were lawyers and they'd say, uh, oh, you know, Connor O'Connor is a swing vote. I just don't think she has the intellectual firepower of an Antonin Scalia or a William Rehnquist, because as you say, those were predictable votes. And I'd say, "Eh, I find that hard to believe. She graduated near the top of her class with William Rehnquist from Stanford Law School. (laughs) So I can't believe she's weak in her intellect. And I, and the, the fact of the matter was she represented where the majority of Americans were on issues like abortion, uh, and other fraught, uh, social issues. So I actually think it's good to have people like that on the court. Um, but yes, I think that presidents and the Senate learned their lessons with folks like O'Connor. And you'll note that Remember the Alito seat, which is the O'Connor seat, when she retired, but she didn't retire fully. She said, I'll leave the court when my replacement is confirmed. And you had Harriet Myers, Mm -hmm. Bush 43 nominated Harriet Myers, who was his White House counsel, longtime friend from Texas. A very bright woman, but not of the same ilk as these Ivy League trained you know, Eastern, East Coast, West Coast intellectuals, conservative or liberal. And she was she was ousted basically by the Federalist Society and their minions in the Congress. She had to step aside because she was viewed as probably too liberal. So they didn't want another suitor. They didn't want another Kennedy. They didn't want another O'Connor. They saw the promised land. And now as of Friday, they have reached it.
0: One of the things that um, my view, uh, like you, I I am not an attorney. Uh, The only bar I've passed is my local tavern. So uh, (laughs) I I stand by both of those. Uh, uh, But historically, um, what I found significant was the court has always been aware of the public move. Doesn't mean it follows the public move, but it's been aware of the public move. I don't think, you mentioned this case earlier, Griswold v. Connecticut, 1965, about married couples and contraceptives, or Miranda v. uh, v. Arizona, Uh, I don't think those get ruled the same way in 1925, the way they were ruled in the 1960s. The current court does not seem to be swayed by those factors. Your thoughts?
1: Well, let's think about public opinion. First of all, there was no way really to know where public opinion was scientifically until the 40s with the Gallup poll and scientific polling that came into existence at that point. Now, you can make the case that members of the court knew about public opinion based on election results, You know, following what happened in Congress, following what happened to presidents and just keeping their ears to the ground being in Washington, that they would have to have a sense of what was happening in the world. And there have been some who say, you know, even though, you know, we sit in this marble temple as of 1937, when this court building opened, otherwise they didn't have their own building. They had to have a chamber loaned to them in the Capitol, in the Capitol building. Um, I, I would say that They've had the sense that they don't sit idly by and have the winds of public opinion blow over the court and not ever affect them. And, and in fact, the great Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes said back in the early 20th century, it's very quiet here, meaning at the court, but it's the quiet of the storm center. And so they are aware, I would say, and Justice Ginsburg used to quote Paul Freund, the law professor, saying that they should be aware as justices of the, um, not the weather of the day, but the climate of the age. Which is really interesting, isn't it? An interesting metaphor. So if you take the concept of the storm center, that the weather is always raging around them, but they should be sitting kind of at the top of the heap there thinking great thoughts and deciding what they need to do based on their understanding of the constitution and the laws. And they shouldn't be following the Gallup poll or the election returns. But given that how they are appointed, they are eventually going to reflect that and they have their own views. So I don't mind if they kind of look at the climate of the age. The interesting thing now, though, especially on abortion, is that they are completely out of step with at least where the public opinion polls show Americans are, which is a majority of Americans, 60 some odd percent believe there should be legal access to abortion at least in the first trimester of pregnancy, because I think the American people get the view that Justice Blackman had in Roe, which is you divide pregnancy into these three trimesters, in the first trimester, obviously the child cannot live outside the mother. And so I think the majority of Americans put the mother's life first and want to give her the option of ending the life within her within that first trimester. So they're actually quite out of step, but maybe they will mold public opinion. You know, maybe public opinion will shift based on their decision. Which, which in an in in, in ironic
0: way, sort of goes back to my question about the Warren court, because I would argue that that's sort of what the Warren court did with cases like Brown and, and, um, and others, they were sort of leading opinion, which was sort of unprecedented. So maybe maybe they will take a more Warren-esque role in that way, I don't know. We'll- it
1: could be, and you could point most recently to marriage equality. I think they were in the lead there. Um, and that's why they are, ice. they're meant to be isolated and they don't have, once they're named, they're named for what the constitution says, good behavior, which is in effect life. Uh, because the founders wanted them to be independent from politics and public opinion. So uh, sometimes they're behind it, as in the New Deal period, where you had a lot of older corporate lawyers who were very conservative and pro-business. So as all of these New Deal economic regulatory pieces of legislation that FDR had sent up to Capitol Hill as part of the New Deal, and he had vast majorities in the House and the Senate, and they passed them. As quick as they could pass them, businesses would say, I don't want to be regulated. They'd get it all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court would strike it down. So sometimes the court is behind. And your point about uh, Miranda was well taken. You know, Everybody can name, from watching cop shows, can name huh. the Miranda rights, right? And I once had a friend who was here in Charlottesville as an exchange student from Austria at the law school. And he was representing a criminal client in Austria. And and the guy said, I I wasn't read my rights. And the judge in uh, in Austria had to say, you've been watching American television. We don't have those here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Does it matter when we look at the legacy of this court? Does it matter? That given we we talked about its potential role as being the the 180 degree antithesis of the Warren Court, does it matter that five of the six justices that rendered the ruling, uh, the overturn role, were appointed by presidents who made it to the Oval Office without a majority uh, vote in the general election?
1: I do think that's important. Uh, Five of the six. Uh, presidents who have not won uh, the, the majority of the popular vote um, and yet put members on the court. Uh, again, it's one thing for the Founding Fathers wanting presidents not to be completely dependent on popular vote. That's why we have the Electoral College and not wanting a court to be dependent at all on the electorate or only very indirectly dependent upon an electorate by virtue of which president names them. But I do think that if the court continues to get out either in front of or behind, however one wants to look at it, on issues that the public in this country has a very strong opinion on, um, I do think that the combination of that and the fact that they are not being represented by presidents who have won the popular vote, will say to us that the court is getting farther and farther away from what the rule of law is to the majority of American public.
0: Uh, well, well, and fo- following up on that, in ter- and just in terms of American democracy, uh, a subject that you know is of great interest here on the public morality. Um, yes. Isn't the journey by which the 63 majority was attained in many ways, as significant, in some in some respects more so, as the actual opinion that has everybody talking today.
1: I think yes. I think you're absolutely right to take that long view, and in the long view, uh, to look back at history and to see that. And it, and I would have to add this one element to it: in the election of Donald Trump who is the essence of a demagogue if you look up the definition of a demagogue that is a a, an elected person who is elected by appealing to or not elected as in the case of joe mccarthy or father coughlin or huey long not elected to the presidency but are demagogues in american history these people according to the definition of demagogue appeal to the base instincts of the people with half-truths and outright lies and often with discriminatory language toward groups in society, and that was what the ancient Greeks feared the most about their direct democracies, uh, that their, the demagogue would take hold because people can be easily swayed by emotion. And particularly to their baser instincts. And so that's what the, our founding fathers feared most in our republic. We are not a direct democracy, obviously. We don't make the decisions, but we choose people who do. And even given that the founders only came from a society where white males with property in their 20s and above could vote, they still put this check on the popular will by the electoral college. But the reason for that, was to check the popular tendency towards choosing demagogues. So given the fact that you have a number of presidents now who have been elected by the electoral college, not the people directly, and given the fact that you have one of these presidents who got the nomination and actually got elected by being a demagogue and then tried to ban the process from working in 2020, um, I think that does raise questions about the legitimacy, at least of the three people that demagogue put on the Supreme Court. Uh,
0: uh, what role uh, might the medical advancements play around abortion? I mean, the, 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 the world of role when it was decided is not the world of role when it was overturned. And, and in many respects, where the back alley clothes hanger is much less, I'm not saying it wouldn't happen, but it's much less a possibility with, with, with things like the morning after pills, plan B, et cetera. Might we see states going further to ban these medical developments as well?
1: Yes, and that's already happening. And so I, I always saw several, in, in addition to that, that you've raised several other medical issues that have an impact on on Roe and on abortion and on uh, pregnancy. And this is why Casey changed the precedent of Roe from the determination of when access to abortion was allowed under all circumstances. And Justice Blackmun, who by the way, had started out as a medical student and then switched to law, um, but used the trimester system of when abortion could be uh, on demand in the first trimester then only in the second trimester, but between the woman and the doctor deciding because that baby is getting closer to viability outside the mother. And then in the third trimester, when it could be viable, premature, but viable outside the mother, then it could be regulated by the state. That was the uh, framework for Roe. And I think because of the medical advances whereby Babies born earlier and earlier in prematurity can be saved now. That line that I mentioned very early on in our conversation about when this other entity, this other biological entity, uh, a potential human or depending on one's viewpoint, a human from conception, Uh, when it can live independently, that has changed. And so that's another element that I think has to go into the mix and that does make people uncomfortable about uh, when an abortion can take place. And we've already had opinions from this Supreme Court about late term abortions and so-called partial birth abortion. So I think that combined with, as you say, pharmaceutical approaches to uh, abortion which would allow women in the privacy of their homes to be able to end a pregnancy uh, on their timeframe early in pregnancy. Um, The problem with that is that you will have states that are going to be banning that procedure uh, and banning uh, going across state lines to get the medicine or banning the mailing of these medications. And that's going to raise lots of issues. Also, you have uh, states that are talking about banning women from traveling to a state or another country where abortion is legal?
0: Uh, Justice Clarence Thomas recently suggested, uh, in spite of uh, Justice Justice Alito's attempts to at least assuage fears, but Justice Thomas suggested that um, civil liberties that we found in Griswold v. Connecticut, where you sort of referenced the number of rights um, get you to the right of privacy. Um, Lawrence v. Texas that um, states could not law consensual sex and Obergefell v. Hodges established a constitutional right uh, to same gender marriage. Um, Are these fears hyperbole or are these valid concerns? The, the, the court might go after these 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 uh, civil liberties as well?
1: I would say that they I would have listed them under that term hyperbole or overreaction if not for Justice Thomas's concurring opinion in which he and I actually have to think his clerks, um, who I'm sure are quite conservative, that sounded like clerk language to me. and by the way, all justices have four, law clerks who are top of the line, well-educated, brilliant young men and women who have served a year for a lower federal court judge, usually appeals court judges, and they're all very bright as well. So I'm not questioning the uh, the educational background and the brilliance of these young people. But I think they, more than anyone, would particularly have these philosophical, ideological activist views. And so Justice Thomas's concurrent opinion in which he, and again, I'm sure his clerks put together this language about the very basis, the philosophical jurisprudential basis for Roe was ill-founded and wrong, and therefore it's used to get to these other rights, what they said in this concurring opinion is that we will have other opportunities perhaps now to go back and revisit those areas that you just mentioned. So if, if not for that, I would say people who are upset about the possibility that Dobbs could end up as a basis for overturning these other rights that the court has developed over these many years uh, could could lead to that. I, I'd say it would have been overreaction, but I think Justice Thomas meant what he said and that the people who are pro-life, for example, for religious reasons, let's say, may also be um, against artificial birth control. Uh, they might be against gender equity and marriage. Um, I, I'm, I'm Catholic, by the way. And I was raised not about abortion. I guess it was too early given my age. They, nobody talked about abortion in our Catholic church or Catholic school. And my parents didn't really talk about it with me either. But it was good because it was pre row But um, I will say that um, we grew up thinking divorce was wrong. So what would prevent an activist group now that's been activist in pro-life realm, maybe is against same-gender marriage, but also might be against divorce? Or what about interracial marriage? Now, Justice Thomas, who is in an interracial marriage and is divorced, (laughs) didn't mention those two things. Um, So I doubt that he's looking to overturn uh, Loving versus Virginia, which... Uh, Enshrine the right to interracial marriage. Uh, but that may be for personal reasons in his case. What if we get a justice who is opposed to that?
0: Uh, well, well, the question, I guess the question I would have for Justice Thomas, would he recuse himself if there was a, a, a case to overturn v. Virginia? So... <laughs>
1: Well, um, he, there we can give two answers to that. One is yes, one is no, based on precedent. <laughs> <laughs> it would be no in the instance Sorry, that we nice know of, Yeah, a no. Well, no. Just the recusal is a yeah, but the his precedent would be if it involves his wife, no. But if it involved his son, as in the VMI case, the Virginia Military Institute case, his son Jamal was a student there, so he did recuse himself.
0: Right. Right. There we go. Something that I found troubling about Justice Alito's, not only the leaked opinion, but also the final version, was his contention that abortion was not deeply rooted in the nation's history. And I find it troubling on two levels. One, um, in a literal sense, he's right, but liberty and equality is deeply rooted in the nation's history. And and the fact is, and the second part that made that troubling for me, is that nothing is deeply rooted in the nation's history until it is. I mean, slavery was deeply rooted in the nation's history, as was um, women not having the rope deeply rooted in the nation's history. So how do we square that philosophical approach about deciding something subjectively not deeply rooted in nation's history.
1: I agree with you, Byron, on that score to be sure. Um, First of all, at what point is it deeply rooted? How many years does something have to exist? And that, as you are pointing out, abortion has always existed, I presume since the dawn of human history. So it was always happening in this country in some fashion. Now, you could say, but it wasn't legal, but it has been legal and a fundamental national federal right rooted in the Constitution for 50 years, which is a fifth of our history. We're not that old of a country. So at what point does it trigger the justice to say, oh, well, now this is deeply rooted in our history. And as you're pointing out with slavery and with women being second, third class citizens, Those were all deeply rooted in history. So if somebody comes now, and I'll give you an example, the issue about the baker and not wanting to bake a cake for a gay marriage ceremony, um, I gave the hypothetical, what about uh, an an orthodox religious person whose faith does not believe women should work outside the home? Could that person say, this is my private business, and I'm not going to hire women? Well, if it's based on whether that is has a long history in the United States, the answer is yes. Women were (laughs) denied rights for centuries in this country and decades. So um, that's why it, it and by the way, I mentioned Justice Brandeis, Justice Brandeis. Uh, outside the court as a labor lawyer, supported protective legislation for women in the workplace based on social science data that he handed into the courts called the Brandeis Brief. And the court used that to uphold protective legislation for women uh, in the early part of the 20th century. And there was a question to this day about whether judges and justices should rely on social science data or the what we're discussing, should they rely on history? or should they rely on interpretation of statutes and the constitution in a judicial vein, not in a social science vein or in a historical vein?
0: I, as always, uh, I enjoy so much our conversations, uh, Professor Perry, and so I wanna thank you again for taking the time uh, to join me uh, on The Public Morality. It's always appreciated to have you on.
1: Well, and it is always my pleasure to chat with you and have these civil conversations about difficult and sometimes emotional issues. The Public
0: Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Pulmic Rally on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Pulmic Rally at their studios. The Pulmic Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, for all of us at the Pub and Morality, I'm Byron Williams.